This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Proverbs chapter 6, right on the nose. We finished up chapter 5 last week, and we're going to begin right at the beginning of the chapter. He says in verse 1, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken hands, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself when thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Deliver thyself as a, a roe from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. And the lesson there is basically, one, don't get yourself in a situation where you are responsible for someone else's debt. It's a co-signing lesson. So I didn't think that the Bible got that nuts and bolts about the way that I lived. Oh, yes, it does. This is a book of wisdom. This is a book of wise sayings, wise teachings, and things that if we embrace them, will keep us out of a lot of trouble. Have it, please don't raise your hand. I'm not trying to bust anyone out, but have you ever co-signed a loan for someone? Have you ever gone in and helped them get a loan or a credit card or a car or anything like that, and then they didn't pay the bill? Well, what happened? Well, they came for you then, didn't they? And one reason why they're quick to come for you is because they know, one, the person that, ne the person that needed a cosigner for the loan obviously wasn't in great financial shape to begin with or they wouldn't have needed a cosigner. And you having cosigned for them are in better financial shape, have a steady job, have resources, have good credit. They're certainly coming after you because they know, one, you've got a job. Two, you've got good credit that you want to protect. Three, you've got resources. And so they're definitely going to come after you. This is a teaching to, one, stay out of that situation. Don't even get yourself into that situation. That's his words that he uses in verse 2. Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. It, it, it could also read, uh, thou art snared with, by, by the signature of your pen. I agree that I will ensure that this is paid, whatever the language is on a co-signed loan. I don't know. Blessedly, I've, I've never made that mistake. That was something I think that my first pastor was diligent to teach a bunch of us first-term GIs because first-term GIs are notoriously poor with their finances. I was very delicate in my language. I, I didn't use the S word. So there's the lesson. But then, okay, well, what if I'm in that situation then? Or what if I'm already in that situation? Because that's something that we find a lot of times as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of God, and as we study in His Word, and as we learn of the Word of God, we learn more about the way in which we ought to live, being born again and in newness of life in Christ, we find that, oh, this is wrong, but I'm already knees deep in it. So now I know, but what do I do? I can't avoid the trap. I'm already in the trap. What should I do then? Well, he says here in, in verse 3, he says, Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself 
When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. That word, make or sure, calls back to verse 1 where he speaks of surety. So what does he mean by make sure thy friend? Well, if you have become surety, a cosigner, or otherwise responsible for a friend or a family member's or an acquaintance's financial obligation, then what you ought to do is as fast as you can Make sure your friend means pay it off. Or make sure your friend is on top of his game. Because it's, it's an axe hanging over your head. It's an axe hanging over, over your head. And I know that this isn't, this is, this is not some profound spiritual teaching. But this is the inspired word of God. And God cares about the whole man and the whole woman. Every aspect of our life, from the most lofty, spiritual, and even theoretical, to right down to you know, where the soles of our shoes are meeting the dirt of the ground. What we're doing and how we're doing it and the spirit in which we're doing it in. So here's his advice or his counsel. He says, give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. View that indebtedness like the death trap it is. Really. When you've... Because it's like, man, you're not even in debt for something that you're enjoying. You're in debt for something that they're using and enjoying, right? Well, you know, I really needed to help this person get a car. They needed a car, and so I co-signed on a loan for him. I knew a man who did that down in Florida. It was a dating situation. He was really interested in this woman, and, and she was... Uh, she was not on. She was not doing well financially, and and so he kind of got a bad case of white knight syndrome, if you know what I mean by that, and uh, sort of rode in on because he had a good steady job and he was making good money and had been for a long time and was doing well, and but he was the type that chose a certain type of potential mate, and so in in pursuit of that she had need of some funds and some resources, and so he helped her get a car. And then, of course, what happened? That relationship went down like every high school relationship. This wasn't a high school one. These were grown people, okay? She was a single mother. Uh, he, was in, he was in his 30s, but it, it went down in flames. And then, well, then what happens? Well, congratulations, you have intertwined yourself with another person's finances. This is why um, cohabitation without the commitment of marriage, is so completely reckless. It's cowardly for one thing, because it's for people that are afraid to commit, okay? Then there's another word that goes along with that too. It's, a, it's, it's just, it's a real low move, okay? Now some people do it because they don't know any better, but there's still an instinct in them that, that's screaming from, from deep inside their mind, don't do this, don't go through with this, don't move in and live with this person and cohabitate with this person. I'm talking about a man or a woman. Yeah, don't go in on this, don't play house. Make it legitimate. Commit. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. It it's, was likened in one song. It's, it's a house you enter and then you don't ever leave it. You, know? you go in and you lock that door and you throw away the key. You don't go into it with this, with this notion that there are back doors. Now, sometimes things happen and, and the other person might decide to leave. We've talked about that before. But people will cohabitate and, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, they'll just start living together and then they'll buy a house together. Or as one person I knew, uh, went and built a house 
uh, he, he and his, his live-in, his girlfriend, they, they built it together as far as they pooled their finances and their resources. And so both their names were on everything. Well, what happened when that relationship crashed? Because they almost always do. Well, now you're in the fine pickle, aren't you? You know, if you date right and with caution and, and with some wisdom, then you don't get yourself in that kind of a trap. And if the relationship goes sour or you just determine, you know, I like you and all and this is great, but I don't think that we're probably a good match for the rest of our lives together, you know, and that's probably, you know, that there's, there's nothing wrong with being honest like that. Uh, in the dating stage, once you're married, it's done deal. Make it work. God will help. But it, you know, when you're dating, if you're, if you're not all bound up together like that unwisely, as he advises us against in this first paragraph of chapter six, then it's a whole lot easier to walk away. You have some emotional, you know, you have the emotional, um, you know, pain perhaps or disappointment, you know, at the very least. But you can shake hands and you can walk away and, and no one's going bankrupt over it, right? Amen? But you're striking hands and making yourself surety and tangling up your finances with someone else with whom you're not married and to whom you're not committed in that respect, then you can't just turn your backs and walk on that. Somebody's got to pay. And when there's a whole ton of emotional pain and baggage that's already involved in the breakup or whatever it is, then uh, you know, sitting down and objectively and rationally going over the exp the expenses that need to be divvied up and okay, 50% on you, 50% on me. That a lot of times that just doesn't even happen because one or both of them are mad and bitter and they'll have an attitude of, I'm just defaulting on this thing and I know how to disappear. And so that, that sorry joker's gonna have to pay for the whole thing. See ya. See how dark and just gross and nasty this gets. So what's the lesson here? Don't get in the trap to begin with. And if somehow you are, get yourself out of it legitimately as fast as you possibly can. As fast as you possibly can. And if someone like me, if it was me, and this is just take this for what it is, okay? Or for what it's worth. If it were me in that kind of a situation, I would borrow from another to pay off that potentially devastating debt and then just work on paying the other person. That's just me. And, and that's not a, that's not a one size fits all type of thing. And, and we can go further with that, but we'll leave it. We'll leave that where it is and we'll move on. Next paragraph, verse six, whole different teaching. Go to the ant, although it does, uh, it does relate to it. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth meat, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth and thy want as an armed man. Here is a lesson on industriousness. 
So this is good stuff tonight. We're teaching on a little bit of wisdom with finances and now a little bit of wisdom about work ethic and industriousness and setting your hand to the plow when the field needs to be plowed. And that's just an allegory for whatever job it is that needs to be done and getting it done and being diligent about it. So let's go back to the beginning of that. He says, go to the ant. So he directs us to this example from the natural world and then calls us sluggards while we're at it. Well, he's not calling us sluggards. So what's a sluggard? A slothful, lazy, bed-loving, uh, leisure-loving person. Oh man, this is going to hurt, isn't it? Because who, who in here doesn't love their bed? And who doesn't love time off? And who doesn't love the opportunity to just sit down, put your feet up, stare at a wall for a little while and think, okay? Or, or whatever it is that you prefer to do. Uh, one person said that uh, the, very, the very best way, the very best way of drinking coffee, the very best way of drinking coffee is to do it while looking across it at other people doing work. It's the best way to enjoy coffee, tea or whatever it is is your drink. I'm learning to love tea. I'm trying to stay off the coffee because it's messed up my sleep too much. It's good stuff and I love it, but anyhow. Well, here he tells us to go to the ant. Well, why does he tell us to go to the ant? Have you ever watched ants at work in their anthills or outside of their anthills? Can't go down in there and watch unless you're really tiny. But you see them working and milling all around, especially if you stir that thing up. If you, if you do like most six-year-olds and you grab a stick and you just jab an anthill with it and, and then it just erupts and there's ants everywhere. And, but what are they doing? Well, they're not, just, they're not just running for the sake of panic. You know, there might be whatever the ant equivalent of panic may be, but they're, 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 they're running and working to clear the debris, repair the damage, and rebuild the uh, rebuild the anthill, rebuild the nest, or whatever it is that they call it. He says to go to the ant because the thing about the ant is, as he says here in verse one, in verse uh, seven, excuse me, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, they work. They work, and you know it, it's it's a case of you know a season for everything. There's a time for everything and a season for every purpose under heaven. And so you know we we seem to be moving away from. Uh, a season of industriousness and hyper productivity in our in our country to uh, much more of a uh, well, some people uh, towards a more leisure based type of lifestyle. And there's this whole anti hustle movement that's trying to get people to to slow it down. But it's not to completely undo all of the diligence. Okay, it's just an, it's an issue of balancing it out. There is tremendous virtue and merit to getting up and getting out there and getting the job done. And that's what he's teaching him here. He's teaching this person that is inclined towards the opposite extreme. So once again, we find the truth in the middle of two extremes, okay? You've got people that are diehard workaholics that never see their family and then one day wonder why they don't have a family anymore, okay? And then you've got people that never work, cannot bestir themselves out of their parents' basement, even though they're 42 or however old that they are. And getting a job is just something that they... It will always be a bother to them because they have no drive, they have no ambition, they have no industriousness. It is to that second type that Solomon says, look to the ant and learn the lesson. Don't be afraid of work. But work hurts. Is this so uncomfortable? I heard this... I heard this uh, 
commercial on Spotify. It was either Spotify or Pandora. It was one of the two. And they, they captured this tone of voice perfectly. I don't know if they were necessarily trying to, but it was this very young woman complaining about so many things get in your way. Parents, teachers, jobs, or something like that. I don't know if she mentioned work or anything like that. And I thought, well, I don't know what I thought. Let me put it this way. I didn't really take the time to articulate it, but that struck me as um, really not the right kind of attitude to have. If teachers are doing their job, the last thing they're trying to do is stand in your way or get in your way. If parents are doing their job, they're only trying to get in your way to keep you from doing something that is destructive or stupid or reckless. Okay? And jobs getting in your way. Well, stop looking at these things as obstacles. Because it's through or it's it's through parents that we should be being prepared for the world beyond our teenage years and beyond our father's house, right? It's through parents and teachers as well. And, but, but, but the teacher relationship can go even far beyond high school because then for a lot of people, though blessedly not too many, you know, there's, there's college for what that's worth, some good, some bad. And so there's teaching relationships there. And then there's the teaching relationships here within the church with preaching and teaching and instruction in the word all the time. And if we're trying to stand in your way, it's because we're trying to stop a person from doing something destructive or unwise or, or reckless or otherwise harmful. But that's not always uh, the case of, of the, something that's going on in someone's life. But, but work, so, well, how's work getting in your way? Well, the only way work might be getting in a person's way is if you've got a particular dream or ambition and that work is interfering with that. And I don't want to get lost in that because this, we want to stick with Bible tonight, okay? But a lot of times work stands in the way of someone even serving God. All right, well, then then it's time to analyze the priority of that job and see if maybe there's something else and pray. See if God will open a door of opportunity elsewhere so that we can continue to learn and grow and 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 not and not allow the garden of our heart to become thorny ground. Right. Remember our teaching on that. Or Jesus is teaching on that with the cares of life, the thorns representing the cares of life that grow up and choke out the word and then it becomes unfruitful. So, but with regards to our attitude toward work in general, it's not supposed to be an obstacle. It's supposed to be an enabler. It is through work. You say, well, work was part of the curse and we sinned. And so God cursed us with having to have day jobs, you know, and in the context where that is. And so this is something that I should hate all the days of my life. No. Yes, that was part of the curse. But it's not a, it's not a curse that is unmixed with a blessing. Because Solomon also said elsewhere in the world, in, in the word, that uh, where there... Where the stall is empty or where there are no oxen, the stall is clean. What's that mean? It means there's no mess to clean up. Ooh, I got clean stalls. Look at me. Yeah, because you don't have any oxen them getting anything done. It, it, it means something when you don't have any oxen in your stalls or horses or whatever pack animal you use to pull the plow and get work done on your land, so to speak, whether literally or metaphorically. Sure, you've got clean stalls, but you also don't have any money in your bank account as a result of that. And so often we find ourselves complaining about having to clean the stalls, so to speak, but 
why complain about that? It means that you have oxen, which means that you have resources, which means that you have the tools that you need to get things done and earn your living in the world and then handle all of that wisely so God can bless that and then increase that as is as is fitting and as you can handle, he being the wise father, knowing how much to bless us with and when. Is this making sense? You see how this is all just, this is brilliant how it all stacks together. This is the wisdom of God at such a rudimentary level. You imagine how profoundly deep his wisdom really goes. And we're barely scratching the surface of it. Go to the ant. The ant's not afraid to work. The ant is not afraid to work in tandem with a team. Oh man, there's a lesson. There's a lesson right there. I prefer to work alone. I'm a lone wolf. I like to work alone. I don't work alone. I don't work well with those. I like to work alone. Really? Why? Well, some people are difficult to work with. Okay, granted, but you know, but when you're the type of person that can't ever work with anyone. Well, then it's not everyone else that's the problem, right? Yeah, I just don't work well with others. I don't play well with others. Okay, well, time to examine your personality and your likability and your agreeableness and all these other things and look into the different psychological traits. I'm not trying to send you down the wrong rabbit hole, but ants work together. And to the best of my understanding without conflict, at least with one another. I mean, they run, up, they run over top of each other all the time. They're ants, you know. They're, when you have that many legs and that goofy looking of a body, you know, how are you going to not? You know, and when your home is made out of tunnels in the dirt. But they work together. They work together as a team. And they are very, very industrious. Let's go to verse 8. He said, provideth her meat. Let's actually, it's a, it's a complete sentence, so let's read it again. Go to the ant, thou slugger. Consider her ways. And that's what we're doing tonight. So we're considering the ways of the ant. He says, consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, no overseer or ruler, no one cracking the whip across their backs, they know what to do and they know how to do it. Have you ever seen an inefficient ant colony? I'll give you a secret. You'll never see one because they don't exist. They are tremendously efficient, highly organized. They, and the, the, the closest demographic that I can think of, of of people that are like that. You know, Americans have been in the past and sometimes still are. The Japanese are very, very much like this. You know, they're a, bit, they're a little bit bigger on the hierarchy aspect of it, I think. I might be wrong about that, but I, th I think that they are. But they are tremendously efficient middle managers. And they got that way for a reason. And it's their culture. It's not their genetics. It's their culture. But they know what to do. They know how to do it. They set their hands to the plow. They put their noses to the grindstone. And they work. And yes, it's easy to take that to the wrong extreme. It's easy to take that to, uh, you know, way over to the other side of things where, where that just becomes your entire life and then it's all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy or however you want to express that as the saying goes. But the lesson here is simply be diligent, be industrious. No, don't put God on the altar and sacrifice Him for the sake of work. Because when you make work your God, well, it'll be a very good God until you're too old to work anymore. And then you're done. 
And then it's, it's, it's a terrible God to have. And, and, and frankly, when, when you die, as we all know, you can't take any of that with you. And in heaven, or rather at the judgment, your job title will mean absolutely nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing at all. Well, I was a manager. Big deal. So were millions of other people. Oh, well, I was a CEO. Oh, wow. Okay. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Not then. Not at the ultimate end. Not at the end of this thing. Not at the end of this race and at the end of this life. But the lesson here is to simply be diligent. He says, He provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? So now he's asking his son directly, how long are you going to sleep? How long are you going to sleep? As you, what did he say in another place? As the door creaketh on its hinges, so doth the sluggard as he turns in his bed. It's a slight paraphrase, but I think I got the, the key words in that accurate. As the door creaks on its hinges, so does the sluggard as he turns in his bed. What's that? It's 11.30 a.m. and they're still in the sack greasing the head, their pillow with their old sweaty head as one person described it. I never forgot that. Get up in the morning. I'm not talking about when you're sick and you're trying to recover from something or if you're a night shifter or something like that. I've worked night shift jobs before. Perhaps others here have. I don't know. Where you know, you're up all night anyway, so close to, of course you're going to be asleep around noon. You ought to be anyway, uh, or not long after that, depending on what your schedule is like. It's a teaching that is pro-industry and diligence and anti-slothfulness and laziness. Now, leisure is not a sin, but when leisure becomes your lifestyle, something, is, something is, has backfired. Something has gone wrong. So well, what if I'm... What if I'm a multimillionaire and I don't have to work? You'll find, you'll find that even if all of those responsibilities and obligations and things that demand that you have to work today were suddenly lifted off your shoulders and you were in a state of financial independence and all of that, you would find yourself in most cases still looking for something to do because the human race was made to work, whether on jobs or whether in the home or whatever it is, because it's all work. Labor is labor, whatever it is, whether it's pushing a broom or pushing a vacuum cleaner or running a machine or, or uh, designing something at a computer or writing or whatever it is. Labor is labor. That's why people get paid for all manner of things, okay? We were made for work of one sort or another. And you find people that try to go against that. It's like going against nature itself and they become restless and then they become depressed and their lives have absolutely no goal and no aim. And they're miserable and they're unhappy. And it's people like that that frequently end their own lives. They frequently do. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? Verse 9. When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come. Here's the warning in the teaching, okay? So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth. Like somebody coming in, traveling in from out of town. Your poverty will come. We love leisure. Okay, fine. We don't always give in to the desire for it, right? You do that long enough, poverty's on the way. 
there's also a time for rest. You need that time. Because if you just go, 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 go all the time and you never take any time to just uh, just retract that rubber band, okay, then things can start to come apart after a while. And once that happens up here, it's very hard to put that back together again. I know we're straying into a lot of psychology, but this is the psychology of diligence and industriousness, okay? So we're, 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 it's, it's all in the same teaching. Diligence is what he's teaching us. You need rest, you take rest. But then what do you do? You get back up and then you, you go at it again. Have you ever stayed in bed too long for any reason? Didn't your muscles start to ache and complain when you did? My back will, will yell at me if I'm too long in the bed. My back will start yelling at me. and I'm, I'm seeing some agreement. This is not, I am not alone, okay? It's, it's because the body knows when it is atrophying and wasting away and becoming restless. And even the flesh that loves leisure and that loves just hanging out and taking it easy and kicking back, even the flesh knows that there's times when it's got to get up and moving and it's got to get to work and it's got to get some things done. And so that's something, using the ant as our example, that's something that we want to be good with and diligent with and keep active in our own lives. Now, now verse 12, here's our sneak preview for next week. He says, a naughty person, a wicked person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes. He speaketh with his feet. So how does he do that? It means you have to watch their feet to know which way they're actually walking because they're double-tongued, deceitful, duplicitous, and untrustworthy. He says, a wicked, a naughty person, a wicked man, walketh with a froward mouth. He winketh with his eyes like the stereotypical car salesman who's trying to shaft you. He speaketh with his feet. means he's dishonest and he's, and he's untrustworthy. He teacheth with his fingers means that he uses tactics to, de- to, to con- he perfects his deceivability. Does that make sense? He, he works at it in being, in being credible when he is not. He works at being convincing when in fact he's dishonest. It says, it, frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity Come suddenly, suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. We'll meditate on that over the next few days and then be at the will of the Lord. We'll come back to this next week, verse 12 in chapter 6, because we don't want to be like this guy and we want to recognize him when he comes across our path so that we are not taken by his deceit. And and I, I can't get the image of the used car salesman out of my mind with this or the or the RV salesman the tacky sport coat that doesn't match the pants and you know and and and, uh, and the real the real greasy manner about him as far as how he, he talks like he's trying to be like Dale Carnegie why he's trying to sell you something he talks he winks he teaches with his fingers look at this beautiful model that we have right here oh yeah it's only got it's only got 35,000 Like the one guy trying to sell me some 15-year-old Cadillac back in the, or 10-year-old, 10, 12-year-old Cadillac back in the 90s. He was trying to sell me this thing. It was an old Cadillac Seville, the notchback one. You remember those? Looked like someone took an axe to the back end of it. But it had, it had a moderately pimpy appeal to it. He was trying to sell me this thing. And he kept telling me, oh yeah, this is you. This is you, man. This is you all the way. 
Verse 12, that's the man right there. We'll talk about that next week. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.